Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Well, it's Groundhog Day. <laughs> Again. Here on Monoreal Radio, episode number 151. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And... I mean, what else is there to say? Okay, so for those of you who follow us on social media, you guys know that this episode was due out last week. Now, if you don't follow us on social media, go ahead and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. But to catch you all up, we had this review ready to go, and the entire audio file was corrupted, and it was completely unusable. Well, not just that. This episode was doomed from the start. We, I don't think anybody really cares that much, but I think just for me, I need to get this off my chest. Have at it. We usually plan our episodes months in advance. Usually it's pretty easy to do if there's a big anniversary coming up, like we'll cover it. Or if it's something we haven't watched in a while that we want to revisit, We'll plan it ahead. If we're going on vacation, sometimes we even try to get ahead with recording, God forbid. Yeah, or if we know like a big theatrical release is coming, we try to do something as a lead-in. Yeah, so it's pretty easy to sort of plan ahead. Yeah, we very rarely go, okay, hey, what are we doing next week and pick a film at random. So for August, we had had this idea to do a bonus episode and review Loki. And as it turns out, to be completely honest, we didn't like Loki as much as we thought we were going to. <laughs> yeah, true. So we just put a big old pin in that because it wasn't just Loki. We were going to do all the Thors. Yeah. So we're going to put a pin in that. We're going to do Thor as a lead in to when Lo- Love and Thunder comes out. And I guess we'll do Loki as so we can recap as a lead in to season two. Right. So then we had some other films in mind that we had scheduled and... We were supposed to do Flight of the Navigator for its 35th anniversary and just skipped right ahead and watched Davy Crockett because I can't <laughs> get my head straight because I've been so crazed at work. And and Sean didn't even catch me when I was like, OK, let's throw on Davy Crockett, uh, which also had an anniversary uh, in July. And that's why we decided to do it. But Flight of the Navigator would have hit right on the 35th. Yep. And instead, the file was corrupted. So here we sit having to do it again. But yeah, the 35th anniversary of Flight of the Navigator. Um, Let's pretend that we haven't recorded this before. (laughs) And let's try to make this as authentic as possible. Have you ever seen this film prior to sitting to watch it for Monoreal Radio? No, I had actually never even heard of it. Mm Mm-hmm prior to sitting down and watching it for the show. See, that surprises me because in spite of the fact that I had not seen it either, I at least knew what Flight of the Navigator was. You know what I'm saying? Like, I knew it was a Disney film. I knew the title. Admittedly, this is the kind of movie that is, like, right in my wheelhouse because there are a handful of movies that I've talked about that I've seen dozens and dozens of times, like Radio Flyer, Space Camp, Batteries Not Included. You know what I'm saying? Like... Things of this, like, time period in the 80s where you had, like, these really wacky kind of, like, sci-fi movies that were geared towards kids, right? Because you have Ghostbusters and Back to the Future, 
it appeals to kids, but it also is sort of geared towards an older audience. And then you had like these really zany concepts where kids are going to space and aliens are coming, right? Well, there was also that time period mm-hmm. where there was an obsession of sending kids to space. Right. And it was the the reward on Double Dare for years. That was the sponsorship. Camp. Yeah. In Huntsville, wanted... Alabama. <laughs> or was it was that the the uh, prize on Carmen San Diego too? No, it, that's too much. I don't much, remember. I think. But it was definitely on Double Dare. I think it was more like academic, but yeah, definitely Double Dare. But yeah, there was an obsession with it and there was like a sort of genre that these films fell into. And I saw all of them because my dad loved these movies and he made sure that I watched them. So like I remember seeing this box at the video store and kind of just thinking like, okay, you've got the kid in the chair, he's on the spaceship, you have the little alien next to him and just thinking this is Disney's version of Space Camp and E.T. and this and that and never thinking that they were going to do it any better. So I kind of just skipped over it for all of those years. For me, I'm surprised it was never on my radar. And we're just going to ignore Walt squeaking. Listen, we're going through with this, folks. We have already been too fast (laughs) and loose with this episode. So we're we're going. We're going. I don't care what happens. We're going for the take. Yeah. Um, For me, though... I was always up on the cult classics because Return to Oz was my jam. That's become very much a cult classic. So I'm surprised that this one kind of slid under my radar. And, you know, it's funny for as much as it falls into that genre of the space movies, you were mentioning the little creature that sits on uh, David's shoulder um, in the screen grab. To me, even though it's totally not the same thing, that kind of reminds me of Never Ending Story. Never ending and never ending story, a little bit of E.T., right? Like oh, totally. all of these fantastical movies, fantastical meets sci-fi all kind of fell into the same sort of genre. The question is, is it as good as those other films? And that's what we are here to discuss again. This review, at long last, is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs. 12-year-old David Freeman is living in Fort Lauderdale with his family in 1978. One night, while walking through the woods to find his brother, he falls into a ravine and is knocked out. He comes to thinking... He has only been unconscious for a few minutes and learns that eight years has passed and he was declared missing and then legally dead. After being reunited with his family, he is eventually handed over to NASA scientists for observation as no one understands how it is possible that he disappeared for eight years and did not age at all or why he has no recollection of where he's been. Upon his arrival, a scan of his brain displays an alien spacecraft that NASA had previously recovered from some power lines that uh, it had become entangled in down in Florida. They also discover star maps and star charts from unknown galaxies and find out that David was on a planet called Phelan, but David has no recollection of any of this. It turns out that David was traveling over the speed of light, so four hours to him was in fact eight years 
for the rest of us. He also learns that his 48-hour stay at NASA has been extended to a week, and he is intent on leaving. The next morning, the spacecraft calls to him, so he escapes his room and boards the ship. He meets Max, a robotic commander on the ship, who keeps referring to David as the Navigator. They escape from NASA, and Max tells David that he needs the star chart from his brain to help complete his mission. Because his mission is that he has been traveling the galaxy, studying life forms, and David was the human life form that he decided to study. After learning how to fly the spacecraft, they start heading back to Florida, down to Fort Lauderdale. Meanwhile, Carolyn McAdams, a NASA employee that has taken a liking to David, tells his parents what is happening. Because they're in the dark. They don't know why he's at NASA or what is going on. Eventually, they arrive back in Florida, and Max tells David that he wants to take him back in time, but he fears that it is too dangerous and that David would not survive the time travel. David convinces Max to try anyway, so they arrive in 1978 at the exact moment that David went missing. He then goes home to celebrate the 4th of July with his family. Now, I have to say, any movie that starts with dogs in slow motion is a winner for me. Every movie should start this way, with a slow motion dog montage. So... It's, but it's kind of weird at first because you don't really know why they're starting with these dogs. Doesn't matter. It doesn't. But it turns out that they are at a frisbee catching competition, and David is trying to teach his dog, Bruiser, to catch the frisbee because he thinks that they can win the competition. And you get this really interesting, like, family dynamic with the mother, the father, and the two brothers that are constantly bickering and fighting. But I think because they're constantly bickering and fighting, personally, I buy this family immediately. I actually disagree slightly, and you have no idea how tempted I am to make you stop and check this recording right now because I am so nervous. Let me tell you something right now. If this audio is unusable... This goes up as a bonus episode with a disclaimer, and we never speak of Flight of the Navigator again. Go ahead. Continue, though. Your, your thoughts uh, on the family. I disagree family. on the family, yes. Um, so I feel like the sibling rivalry is just taken to an extreme here. Um, okay. Was that a trope? Sure. But I feel like that came more from brother and sister relationships that always argued just by virtue of... They're different genders, and one of them is constantly annoying the other, and the other just doesn't understand and doesn't get it. Right. So here, because you have two brothers that are very close in age, it just feels like they're trying to create conflict for conflict's sake, and we don't know enough about these two characters yet to understand why there's such a disagreement, other than that they're brothers and they're not getting along today. Well, I think, here's the thing. You have you have a younger brother. I have a younger brother. From the perspective of two young boys that would call each other names and just fight for the sake of, I don't think you really need to like delve into why are they doing this to each other. To me, it's sort of just what little brothers did to each other. If I have any issue with it at all, it's that 
David is the older brother, and he is being picked on by the brother that is four years younger than him. Typically, it's the other way around, where it's the little brother that's trying to tag along, and it's the older brother that wants nothing to do with him. And, and, and you would expect then, like, the older brother, he leaves, and the little brother goes to find him, and then gets abducted, and he lives with this guilt. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of the formula that it would follow, so this does turn it on its head a little bit it does a little bit but not enough where we should just overlook the fact that they're doing this just because it's what movies did back then you know i mean i get what you're saying they're brothers they're not getting along but we shouldn't just write it off as well that's how it is in real life it should be more of a reason that helps push the story forward because they have different interests or because they're so there's such contrast to each other and that's what doesn't get established the only thing that weirdly does get established is that the younger brother jeff right yes he he doesn't like the dog for no reason at all and yeah, it's, it's like the weird. family pet but he pins it as as david's dog yeah it's not as if um it's not as if that it's David's dog and it's not the family's dog. Bruiser is the family's dog. So why Jeff <clears throat> calls the dog names and uh, just kind of seems like he has no faith in the dog to learn how to catch a Frisbee. You're right. In in that aspect, it's sort of strange because I don't know anybody that would turn on the family pet the way that Jeff does. Right. But with all of that being said, you establish that they are very different because... Jeff's a rough-and-tumble kid. He wants to go play with his friends. He's going to hang from trees in the woods and scare people and play pranks. And David is kind of the science nerd. You know, he's got the model cars, and he's got the telescope, and he's awkward with girls, and his dad kind of has that father-son conversation when, you know, it's not the birds and the bees, but it's when the little boy starts having certain feelings about the little girl and the dad is like trying to level with him. And actually, I thought that scene was really good. Tropey though it is, it was pretty decent. Well, the thing is this, right? You kind of have to establish that the parents, and this is where the movie does break um, from a lot of the 80s tropes. These are not the clueless parents. And that's sort of what you saw a lot. The overworked parents, the clueless parents. The helicopter parents. Yeah. In this case, you have parents that are dedicated to their kids, are dedicated to the family, and are taking the time to level with their kids, right? Like, I kind of get the feeling that they're not a dysfunctional family. They're not a confused family. And I think that what it does successfully, it makes the parents likable so that when we find out that eight years has passed, you feel so bad for them because they believe that they have lost a child. Definitely. What's so interesting about this scene too is that I wasn't sure if this was filmed in California to look like Florida. And once they get back to the house and they go up to David's room and they're having this conversation, I was like, oh no, that house is every bit of Florida. Pastel carpets, white walls. <laughs> Glass tile everywhere. It was certainly Florida. So now they have the conversation. David sets off to find Jeff because it's the 4th of July. The family's getting ready to take a boat out, have some hamburgers, and set off some fireworks. 
and immediately it feels so much like E.T. When he's walking through the woods, because it's like the field, which I believe was corn, that Elliot is walking through when you see E.T. the first time in that scream that haunted my nightmares as a five-year-old. Uh, as it did everyone. That That's and the still scene you, does. the first time you see it when you're too young to see it. Yeah. That's the one that really sticks with you. And so I think that what this film does well is it was very easy for them to just rip off E.T., right? Because it really does have that feel, especially because you know that something extraterrestrial is coming. But they don't necessarily pay off on it because it's not an alien that pops out and you get like a false sense of security where it kind of like it takes a beat and then it's Jeff. So I sort of like that Disney played with the emotion of the audience a little bit because you're expecting one thing and it doesn't happen, but they immediately wallop you with something else. Yeah, that wood scene drags on just enough. Every time I was like, all right, cut out of this. Let's move along. They did something that was the opposite of what you'd expect that kept it interesting. Uh, it's really well shot. You get a great balance between David's POV and, you know, scanning the woods to see what's there and just as much of David so it feels like he's being watched as well he should because it's his brother the whole time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then after the scare... It totally lures you into a false sense of security because I really thought we were going to have an alien jumping out at that point. Right. And instead what you get is Bruiser finds the spacecraft in the ravine and David falls in. Now what's really interesting about this the first time I saw it is I went, oh my God, what a horrible edit. Because it, it the film reel almost skips. It looks like a jump cut. Looks like a jump cut. And I go, oh my God, how did they let that slide in what was really, for the time, a big budget film? And it's not until you watch the movie the second time that you realize it's done intentionally. It's not a bad cut. It's a jump of eight years. Because David comes to and he goes to his house and when he gets to the house and his family is not there, it is a really, to me, it's a really powerful scene. And and, and in fact, it reminds me of Back to the Future 2. When Marty comes oh, back. Oh, that. When Marty comes back to the alternate 1985 and there are bars on the windows and he jumps in through his bedroom window and there's a teenage girl in the bed because it's not his house. Um, impressed, though, as I am, uh, Disney, this movie came out a year before Back to the Future 2, so it's not even like it's contrived from, from that franchise. Disney did it on its own. They did it first. And I think they did it just as well. Right, because what they do very successfully here is that they keep the audience with David in his POV. So we don't know about this time jump. And I think for as much as it does look like a bad edit your only other option would have been to have him passed out and wake up and come to, and that's just going to confuse the viewer. So I think you definitely needed something, and they handled it as best they could, as janky as it looks. Um, but story-wise, 
I love that we're just as in the dark as David is, as opposed to doing the Back to the Future thing where we're on Marty's side the entire time and we're trying to convince everybody else that we have traveled through time. Um, So here, actually, as this plays out, it almost gives David the quality of being an unreliable narrator because where not that you can't trust him but without knowing fully what happened there's just enough of a sense of mystery where we start to question david right um and because the thing is like you don't know what's going on you don't know right away that it's a jump in time you're thinking there like there's an alternate universe there there's an alternate timeline to kind of play with the idea of Loki here that like he has somehow crossed into a different dimension uh, an alternate dimension so it really keeps you guessing and the kid Joey Kramer in this scene he's so scared like the child actor is so good in this scene I actually thought on first viewing that something happened to his family not realizing that this was in fact the time jump I mean just reading the brief synopsis of what this was about, I thought the time travel was going to come into play once he got into space and he figured out how to do it on his own. I really thought this was going to be about him having to track down his family that disappeared. Right. But instead, we find out, because now we go to a police station and you have all of the missing juvenile posters all over the wall, and you're now you're really kind of interested because we, as you pointed out on the POV, we're on the POV of David, we have no idea how much time has passed by. We have no idea what's going on. When they pull out his poster that he went missing and they go, look at the date, 1978. This was eight years ago. I remember going, whoa, wait a second. This just got wild real fast. Definitely. And when they they start talking to him, right, because... He's telling them, I've only been out for a few minutes. I don't know where I... I woke up where I fell. And they ask him, who's the president? And he's like, it's Jimmy Carter. And the look that the two detectives give each other, it was sort of unsettling in many ways. It was very smart dialogue, though, because they're not just testing the time frame out. They're testing out his mental stability. Right, and he's sitting there, he's like, oh, do you need that for your notes too? Yeah. You know, he's so snarky about it because he thinks that these questions are just ridiculous. Right. And then he goes to a home that is not his own, and there is his family, and they're all aged. I remember, of course I would remember, we just did this last week, but I could tell you that this was the first of a couple of instances where I got a pit in my stomach seeing not only how much his parents had aged, but that his younger brother is now older than he is. Yeah, it really does a good job of toying with your emotions because, as we've said, we are on the side of David at this point, and he's, okay, he's 12, but he's still a little kid, and you just want to see him get back to his family where he belongs. Even though we haven't felt those eight years go by yet necessarily and felt the gravity of the time apart, 
And then they briefly flip you over to the parents who are just so overjoyed that he's not dead and they have him back. And then they flip you right back on David, who's like, wait a minute, why do you have wrinkles on your face? And you start to feel that loss of the eight years. You feel it. You feel the desperation, the confusion, the sadness, right? The sadness because... The dog got older. The brother got older. I don't care about the brother, but the dog, I mean, you... He's still there. He is, but you missed more than half of his life. That would kill me. Yeah. And then it's almost immediately that he gets turned over to NASA, right? Because NASA has pulled the ship out of the power lines, and when he's in the hospital, they do a brain scan... And they see the spacecraft that looks like a big silver walnut flying in the sky. And they immediately know, okay, there's a connection here. We have to turn him over to NASA. Yes, ye old, we want to run medical tests, but we're actually going to treat you like a science experiment. In the white plastic outfits, classic NASA. Classic bait and switch. Classic bait and switch. Classic NASA. But the brainwaves are wild. Not only do you get the ship, but then once he gets to NASA, all of the star charts, the galaxies, the whole thing is just so wild. And it's like coming at it fast and furious. But what I really, like, what, what I thought was really trippy about this, they're asking David questions. David, where were you? I don't know. The computer answers Phelan. How long were you there? I don't know. The computer starts answering everything. And it's not that David is lying. It's that he has no recollection of any of this. But as soon as they realize that his subconscious is talking through the computer, they're asking questions and completely ignoring him and just focusing on the answers that are coming out of the computer. Joey Kramer really nails the scene, by the way, because he's so shocked reacting to this computer. He really grounds the scene. He's great. The only thing where this starts to lose me a little bit is that once he starts to get tested, the audience should be a little bit more clued in as to what is going on because he's also been hearing voices, but we've not heard. And we're supposed to be in his POV. So now there really is a sense of distrust where a little bit of mystery before that was okay. But now you really don't know what's going on with David. And we're supposed to want to root for him by this point because NASA's got him under their uh, under their supervision. Right. Under the guise of 48 hours. And all he wants to do is be with his family because he was so scared being without them. They want to be reunited with him. And you know it's not going to be two days. Oh, yeah. You know that going in because of the classic 80s NASA bait and switch. But what is really interesting here that they do, and it it's one of the few things about the movie that bothers me, when... They find out that he was at Phelan. The scientists talk about it like it's something that they knew existed and they had been searching for. But they never, like, elaborate or build on it. So so it's sort of just like we discovered something 
because of David, and we're asking all these questions, and he can't answer them. So the whole time, I'm, I'm waiting for this to come back around where they knew that this galaxy existed. They knew that this planet existed, and they're hanging on to David for answers because they're trying to figure out how to get there. Like, they're exploiting him. None of that comes to fruition. It's kind of just like, oh, wow, look, a new planet. Let's find out about it. Right. The way that they're talking about it makes it seem like, oh, Jupiter. Like, we're yes. all just supposed to know it. Yeah. Um, but it does work in service of villainizing NASA even more because... Poor NASA. <laughs> you And you know I'm a sucker for a NASA celebration in everything. Apollo 13, Armageddon can't get enough of it when the guys in suits all throw their papers in the air and get all excited. We got to show you Space Camp. If you like a NASA celebration, we got to show you Space Camp. The ultimate NASA celebration. Uh, No, but this, it it does villainize them a little bit because, like I said, you know that it's never just going to be 48 hours. And they're doing something horrible and keeping this little boy away from his family. But... Now it's sort of it would have given them a, more of a reason to keep him if this was like the missing link that they had been looking for. Right. So now and and to further get you to not trust NASA, they get him into his room where there are no doorknobs because there's it's a, a pocket door. There's a two way mirror It's a two way mirror. They filled it with toys and souvenirs from the Kennedy Space Center because they're trying to butter him up. And of course, you know that that's exactly what they're trying to do. It's like, oh, he's a 12-year-old. 12-year-olds like toys. If we give him a toy, he'll trust us. So you know it's like really skeevy and really slimy. And they they turn on a television and a music video comes on. And it's really interesting now because MTV as of the time of this recording, celebrated its 40th anniversary yesterday. Okay, so in a way, it's good that we didn't get this episode out last week. Yeah, that's week. the exact thing <laughs> that the universe was trying so that we could mention that it was the 40th anniversary of MTV yesterday. Hey, I'm celebrating. I'm with Viacom at the moment, so I I was actually pretty happy to be part of such a uh, a big celebration. Can you ask them to celebrate by putting music on music television again? That would be appreciated. Let's not push it, but there's a commemorative moon man. But anyway, a music video comes on. In comes Carolyn McAdams, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. And this kid, David, has no idea what he's seeing on television. So now at this point, MTV is five years in. It's a massive thing. Music videos are a massive thing. So for us... Maybe not a big deal. But at the time that this movie came out, because it was so new and so fresh, being a movie-going audience in 1986 and seeing a kid at the age of 12 that doesn't know what a music video is, it probably hit closer to home than it does now. It's not to say that it doesn't hit now. It does. But a kid watching this now wouldn't see a music video on TV. They'd see it on YouTube. But I think, with all of that being said, I think it's still sort of holds up in regards to the shock value of a kid not knowing what a music video is. Right. And regardless, there is that bit of clever writing that David is asking to watch Starsky and Hutch and Sarah Jessica Parker has to explain, oh, that show went off the air years ago. And again, that might get lost in translation now because of streaming and YouTube and 
on demand and everything else that we have now. But once upon a time, when a show was done and it it was wrapped up and no longer in production, you couldn't find it anywhere. It aired when it aired and that was it. And you didn't even have reruns at that point. So aside from cluing us into David's POV again, not knowing what a music video is, it also serves to, again, demonstrate what he has lost in these eight years. Because we're talking about, okay, your brother's older, you missed half your dog's life. That's something that we're seeing, but they never really address it as far as how David feels. This is the first time we see him get sad over the loss of time other than realizing that his parents have aged. Right. And then they go, they take it even a step further because Sarah Jessica Parker says, oh, what are you, weird? You don't know what a music video is? And he says, I'm the weird one. You've got purple hair. And she goes, right. I went to a concert last night. And he was like, oh, who'd you see? Twisted Sister. He goes, never heard of her. And she's got to say it's a him. And that's ironic to me because now Sarah Jessica Parker looks just like Dee Snyder. <laughs> um, but it's funny because it's true. It is. And and what they do, though, is that the movie ages itself at its release point because he goes, yeah, my mom just took me to a concert a couple of months ago. We saw the Bee Gees. Right. So like the I, they it did a really good job of being sort of tongue in cheek but also continuing to shock you because 1986, Twisted Sister's a big deal. So for a kid to say, I don't know who she is, it like the hits just keep on coming when it comes to audience reaction. It's unfortunate that looking at things that are time-stamped like that now, they don't necessarily hold up. But back then, I mean, we're talking about this was almost 40 years ago, you weren't thinking on those terms. You know, you weren't thinking that somebody is going to call up this movie on a streaming service and that joke is not going to hold. Right. Of course not. They wouldn't have known. They, Like you said, they don't have reruns, much less a streaming service with tens of thousands of films and television shows on demand for, you know, seven bucks a month. Okay, let's move on here because it's not until you get almost halfway into the movie where you get David on this spacecraft, right? Now, it's not to say that the pacing is bad. I actually think, in spite of the fact that the movie is called The Flight of the Navigator and you're waiting to get the kid on the spaceship, the fact that you wait almost halfway into the movie before you get him on there and it doesn't feel like it drags is actually a compliment to the screenwriting, the editing, and everything else, and especially to the cast, that they're able to carry the film and keep you interested Because you're only starting to get into the meat of the movie now. Right. Because based on the description, I really thought this was going to be like a Mars Needs Moms where within three minutes of screen time, you're up. Right. And And the adventure starts from there. Right. Technically speaking, the adventure doesn't start until really this point. With Ralph. With Ralph. Right. This, it, it looks like, it looks like a... Uh, when the flight attendant comes through on the airplane. Like a push cart, yeah. And it's got everything in it, but it delivers food, it delivers mail, and a really clever throwaway line from Sarah Jessica Parker is, oh yeah, it does this, it does this, it does this. So when he sneaks out on this thing, 
and all these people from NASA see it just roaming around, heading towards the hangar where the spacecraft is being kept. Nobody questions it, because that's what this thing does. It just roams the Kennedy Space Center all day long. Right. It's an 80s movie, so of course you're going to have a robot, naturally. What I didn't catch the first time that we watched this was that this voice that David has been communicating with has programmed Ralph's coordinates to take him to the spaceship. I thought that David was just had just figured out a way to get Ralph to maneuver through this campus and, and get him out. But I never realized that it was purposely done to get him to that spaceship, which, by the way, I think I'm forever going to kick myself over that. Uh, having never seen or even heard of this movie, this spaceship that you said so eloquently looks like a walnut because it does, sat on the backlot tour for God knows how many years. And I'm sitting there as a little kid going, I can't wait to get to Catastrophe Canyon and just zipped right past mm-hmm. it. Uh, but I do remember it. When I, when I read that it had been on the backlot tour, I was like, oh, that's right. That was the thing that always looked like it was going to tip over. Because they kind of just left it sitting on its edge. It looked like they just totally. dumped it there and said, okay, we're done. There it is. But I love the spacecraft. I love the design. I love the set. Once you get in to the spaceship itself, the way that the seat comes out of the floor, the way that the gears come out of the seats, the way that Max is basically on an arm, but he's connected to the ship, and he and he just kind of moves around. He's not free-floating. Like, I think part of what makes this film visually hold up is the fact that they did it with practical effects, right? Like, if that movie were to be made today, it would all be CGI. It, it none and it wouldn't it wouldn't look real. I honestly, I don't think it would look real for today, much less 20, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 35 years from now. And I think that the set is just so cool. Like this is where I sit here and pound the table like enough with the CGI keep to practical effects. This scene or or this movie really does not get nearly enough credit for this spaceship because it it's beautifully designed from the set design perspective, but it just looks so cool. It's all chrome, but the functionality of it too, the yeah. way that Max is able, and we're going to get into him in a minute, uh, the way that he's able to maneuver around the spaceship and the reason that you didn't need to rely on a computer is because they did figure out that tongue and groove system. Like we used to have a toy like that where you had like the lever on the bottom and it would like move a person on the top because you had all of the the slats in the in the board. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this was. Like can you see him? Yeah. Does it matter? No, no. because he glides so seamlessly. Uh but the design is just absolutely incredible. It kind of reminds me of Captain EO a little bit. And this is where I'm like how was how did I never hear of this because how was it never a ride? How this was never an attraction other than being an abandoned vehicle on the backlot tour, I don't understand. You know, this is an IP. This is something that Disney owns. And when they were trying to... I mean, when they're trying to compete with Universal, right? Like when Universal opens up and they're adding Star Tours and they're adding all of these really interactive 
attractions, how they didn't take this and build upon it, give it a world, give it an attraction, is beyond me. To me, I would have rather had this than Mission Space. I mean, Mission Space came, I think, a little bit too late for this movie. But instead of having something, you know, like like one of my faves, Body Wars, where, you know, same concept as Star Tours, you're, you're watching the screen and the vehicle's on hydraulics and it moves. I would have rather had something like this where you did have a hand in controlling it because these the controls that David has are so cool. They come up out of the floor and they look like two like Simons almost. Yes. And um you you glide it with both hands to steer the ship. It's not like a wheel. It's not at all what you'd expect to look like, you know, like an airplane or a helicopter or something. It's totally different and it's just futuristic enough for this, but it, it's kind of like what Tomorrowland is now, where it's futuristic and timeless at the same time, where it's something I still, at 35 years old, want to do. Again, I think that this has everything to do with the fact that they built a set with practical. I never need a reason, in my opinion as much as most of you are probably tired of hearing about it, to bring up Ghostbusters. But I'm going to do it. Because it actually... I can stand to reason that in this case, me bringing up Ghostbusters really does make a lot of sense, and let me explain why. We have Ghostbusters Afterlife coming out this November. Thank God, finally. Now, they are now starting to show trailers in the theaters. We saw one before Jungle Cruise. Hallelujah. They're using practical effects. Yes, there is CGI. There is. But Jason Reitman and Dan Aykroyd, specifically Dan Aykroyd, said, it may cost more. Puppets look better. That's why the original movie still looks good. That's why the 1984 Ghostbusters looks better than that other movie that came out in 2016. Listen, I hate that movie. But if the effects were good, I'd say, well, the movie stunk, but the effects look great. The effects look like a video game. They look like the Ghostbusters video game from 10 years ago. That's what they're trying to avoid with doing puppets and animatronics. And that's what this movie does, because the creatures that they have on the ship, they look like something out of Henson's creature shop. The way that the ship, as you said, is so functional. It's so intriguing 35 years later and it's so interesting to see how functional it is and like I think a kid now watching this would want to be in David's shoes right I mean that's the whole point of the movie right is you as a kid as an adolescent want to fly the ship with Max you want to fly the ship like David and I think that if you did everything with green screen and computer it's going to fall flat much like the little bit of CGI we do get with the um, the steps to get right. in there, only David can unlock them, and they just kind of melt into place. It, it, looks, it looks like liquid metal. It, it looks terrible. I mean, the cool concept, poor execution as far as the CGI goes. But then you get the steps themselves once they do solidify and he walks up them and it looks amazing it looks like they're floating on the air so it's just that 
transition as the steps are forming that look that looks bad but the the rest of it is just so cool it gets a pass we've talked about him so much at this point let's get into max compliance i love everything about max i think that he is a character is a lot of fun he's very funny he's very snarky sarcastic but i love how it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like um, Pirates of the Caribbean, like one with the crew, one with the ship. Because Max, here's the thing. It's so easy for them to have just made a droid. Right. Or another robot. Because, again, Star Wars is a thing. Space movies are a thing. Even in Space Camp, you have Jinx. He's kind of a robot droid thing. In this case, you have Max that is a part of the ship. He's basically an arm with like a lens and that's all he is but he's a computer and you have to tell him what to do he is only going to do what you tell him and that's where this movie got very smart they sort of bicker a little bit as David is trying to figure out exactly what to make of him and how to deal with him and that got a little bit annoying but when you think about it in terms of your computer is only as smart as you are because it's only doing it what you tell it to do right so once they stripped that down it was actually very realistic and then it got a little bit more fun because they do an upload to Max and that's where he takes on a little bit more of a personality. But like you said, compliance, that's every time Max understands and he's going to execute the task, he'll say compliance. But I, I loved that. I loved how he is a computer that just takes everything literally. Yes. When, when uh, David says, get us 20 miles away from here, compliance and just shoots them 20 miles up in the sky. And he's like, what are you talking about? Well, You said get us 20 miles away. He's like, that's not really what I meant. Okay, let's go back and drops him straight down. And then he just takes him 20 miles into nowhere into the middle of a field. But I love how until he does get a little bit of that personality, he is completely literal. He's cut and dry, right? He kind of reminds me of Vision a little bit in that way. where Or Drax. Exactly, where they are just too literal for their own good. But he is a computer. He's AI, right? So I thought it was really interesting, and I thought it was a great way to establish the character in the movie. And it also creates a little bit more of an exciting chase, because now you've given the NASA villains a chance to catch up. So they're hot on his tail, and because there's such a breakdown in the communication, you've got David flying all over the world just trying to get back to his parents who are 20 miles away, we now go by way of Tokyo. I love how they ended up in Tokyo. It's great. It's actually really great. I mean, is it extreme? Yes. Is it annoying that Max took it that literally that we end up on the other side of the world? Yeah, kind of. But what you get instead is this amazing Soren type of visual where he's just coasting all over the world and it's really cool. Honestly, I I would love it if Soren took a page from this book. What a great overlay that would be. If they did something seasonally, yeah. It could be a lot of fun. Um let's talk about the music scene. Oh, it's so good. Okay, so at one point, as they're making their way back to Florida after they've gone to Tokyo. They're trying to get directions, and they pull up next to a bunch of teenagers in a convertible, 
and they're blasting music. And I think, if I remember correctly, it was the same song that was in the music video that David was watching. And which I think is all made up for this world. They didn't get like an actual radio hit, but I think this was supposed to be like the popular group. Yeah. Of the time where it's just everywhere. Like sort of what, um, oh my God, what the heck is the name of the Jonas Brothers in Camp Rock? Oh, th- uh, three plus three or three sound whatever it was something like that but yes in that world like we know it's the Jonas Brothers but for that world it's that band yeah um but I love that Max says what was that and he starts to play it back because again he's a computer he just repeats what he hears because he takes everything literally and David says well that's music and he's like what's music and he's like well see what you can tune in and eventually he winds up on I Get Around by the Beach Boys, and David is so excited to hear that, and he's singing the song, and he's cruising along. Like, what you would expect a kid from 1978 would want to do, obviously that song's a lot older than 1978, but at that point, it's still a very, I mean, it's still a relevant song to this day, but obviously... He likes the Bee Gees, he likes the Beach Boys. Stuff that was popular at the time, and and to see this 12-year-old kid cruising... In a space shuttle, or a spacecraft, I should say, not the shuttle, but cruising in a spaceship to I Get Around by the Beach Boys, it's fun, it's endearing, because it's one of the first times that you see David actually very happy, and it's something that's familiar to him, and it's it's between he's now getting a feel for this spaceship, and now he's got the music that he is familiar with, it's almost like it's starting to feel normal for him. You can tell, though, that they really had some fun with this scene. I think the actor had some fun. Uh, I think the production had fun because it does get a little bit music video-ish the way that they're editing it. Uh, it's just it's just an overall great scene. For sure. It's a nice, a nice breather because, like we said, at this point, you know, he's been sad. He's trying to get back to his parents, and NASA is hot on his tail. Um. You mentioned them before. Uh, I want to talk about the creatures. Yeah. Uh, a little bit random. I kind of feel like just because this was such a genre movie, you kind of had to go that Jim Henson's creature shop route. Uh, but they do sort of cover their tracks and say that this was why they were on the mission the whole time is because they're studying these life forms. And now, much like an Infinity Stone, they have to be returned to their timeline from which they were taken. Right. Um, I think they still look good. They're fun. I mean, that's it. They're, they are there for kids, right? But it's cert- that what it, what it does successfully is it plants the entire idea that there is a shot that David, we know as the audience, is a shot that David's going to go back to normal. And he's going to go back to where he was. But they, they planted early on, like, no, we don't think that we're going to be able to do this because it's too dangerous. So now... Or because they're moving so fast, like the one creature that he really takes a liking to, he couldn't go back to his planet because it evaporated, I want to say. Something happened where the planet was no longer there. The Death Star took it out. It's gone. (laughs) But you're right. And so he doesn't want to bring him back because basically he's leading the thing back to its own execution at that point. Right. So... I think it worked. I think for planting it, it worked. And it certainly makes the payoff towards the end of the film really worthwhile. Um, but okay, let's 
let's talk now about this really cool scene. I think it's a really cool scene where David pulls, because again, he's a 12 year old kid. He just knows what he knows. He pulls the spaceship over at a gas station in the middle of nowhere and he pulls the thing up and it's, it's next to the pump and big Al, it's the guy's name is standing there in stunned silence and David borrows some loose change off of him to call home. And he tells... To call home? To phone home. There you go. And they made sure to uh, let you know that that joke was there, that he just wanted to phone home. So he calls home and he tells Jeff, because they know NASA's listening in, he tells Jeff, we're on our way back. I don't know where the new house is. You're going to have to give me a sign. And that pays off later. What I love about the scene most of all, though, is that a family pulls up in uh, in a minivan. I think it was a Chrysler. But it was like the minivan that everybody had. It was like, had the paneling on the side of it, right? And the kids pile out, and it's a son and a daughter. The son's got a Miami Vice t-shirt on, and the daughter has an original Epcot Center t-shirt because Epcot had only opened five years ago. I don't care if it's product placement. I absolutely love that we had an Epcot Center shirt in this movie. Oh, it's great. And even though it's product placement now, it's so meta. It's fantastic. So you get the phone home joke and they head back to Fort Lauderdale. And Jeff is now on the roof of the house setting off fireworks. Now, these were the fireworks that were David's, that he was supposed to set off on July 4th. They never shot them off. They just had it in in when they basically boxed up David's room, those fireworks went in a box. Um, and some of them don't work because the powder in them is dead. But when they finally start going off and David gets there, it's a really, it's a really heartfelt moment because David came home. No, let me rephrase. David went back to the house. David did not go home. And I think that this is such a strong moment in the film. It's such a strong moment for the character. I think it's one of the understated moments in any Disney film. And I think that because the movie falls into the status of cult classic, perhaps forgotten classic, it's sort of a shame that this scene in particular is forgotten about. Yeah, this was a much-needed layer that I didn't think we were going to get. I wasn't expecting it. Uh, it's such a great character arc for David that it's not enough that he made it home. He wants to go back to the right point in the timeline. And I had, you know, we, we had kind of alluded to this before because his dog is older. His brother's older. He's missing his favorite TV show. They hit on all of those points, but they don't really explore them enough. So I think that's why this takes you by surprise, because his whole thing is get back to my family. He's not so much focused on the time that he's lost other than these little moments of, oh, but I want to watch my TV show. Oh, I don't know what this song is. You don't get a sense that he misses his old life. It's just the little boy wants to go home to his mother and father because he doesn't feel safe. So there could have been a little bit more connective tissue, but I'll, I'll overlook it because the point is we got it. We got a really great 
arc for David in that he's going to go back on his terms. His conviction is so strong that it takes a likable character and makes him a lovable character because Max does not want to take him back. Well, Max does want to take him back. Max doesn't want to risk David's life. And, you know, because they don't think that his body can physically handle the time travel. And David says, you brought me to my family, but you didn't bring me home. It's such a strong moment, especially considering the fact that he's only 12 years old, but his conviction, he's willing to die if it means he can go back and live his life as he was supposed to, as opposed to just throwing up his hands and going, well, all of my friends are 20 years old now. I've got to start over again. Yeah, no, it's it was just so unexpected that it's not enough for him. It has to be the right year. I know. It's just, I, I don't know what else to say other than it's just such a great scene. And so he does, obviously, spoiler, he survives the time travel and basically gets to pick up where he left off. So, like, there's this great sense of victory for David, but also for you as the audience because you have taken this fantastic journey with him. All right, do you want to move on to the cast here and talk about some of the characters? Sure. Okay, let's talk about David. Played by Joey Kramer, we mentioned him before. The kid just carries the movie. Uh, right, because by and large, he interacts with nothing but Max. You know, there are a few people along the way. Once he gets onto the spaceship, once he gets away from NASA and his family, he just interacts with this Armin lens. But he's able to carry the film. He adds so much depth and weight to the scenes that he's in. Again... A forgotten about hero, a forgotten about classic character in the Disney catalog. Yeah, this this kid brings such, and I really can't believe I'm about to use this word, a, a gravitas to this role that I I just really wasn't expecting. I mean, when you think of something like Home Alone, for example, two completely different movies, but at their core, the kid wants his family back, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that Macaulay Culkin had a sincerity quite the way this kid did. No, um, he was great. Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone was great. If oh, I'm, I'm be- not hating. I'm not. I'm not throwing shade at Macaulay Culkin. It's, it's not as. I mean, it's not his best performance. I, I can think of three other movies off the top of my head that he's much better in. But it's also the character, right? Yes. Because Kevin's going to outsmart everyone. Yeah. And. Because he's got to be three steps ahead, he's more sarcastic, he's more on his toes. You know that Kevin's going to be okay. Here, because David is more scared, and because we're not dealing with burglars, we're dealing with space aliens. It is two different things, but there's a heart that David has that Kevin does not. For sure. Um, Yeah, great character. Max, played by, as he's credited in the film, Paul Mall. But it's not Paul Mall. And the minute that he takes on the upload from David and he starts to laugh, <laughs> you know right away it's Paul Rubens. Um, it's interesting to me that they would... not. It's not interesting that they would go with Paul Rubens because by this point, Pee-wee's Big Adventure has already come out. 
And Paul Rubens had not done anything horrible. Not yet. What I did find sort of interesting is that he basically just starts laughing like Pee Wee Herman. And I understand you cast him because he was Pee Wee Herman. But did you really need him to be Pee Wee Herman? I'm sort of surprised that Disney would just be like, yeah, do Pee Wee. Yeah, but I don't think he went like full Pee Wee, though. I think he held it back a little bit. Most certainly when we first meet Max, like that's where it really kind of blindsides you when he says things like compliance, because he does have that lifeless robotic quality. And then you see the personality shine through a little bit more. But the biggest surprise for me, and we didn't mention it when we when we get to that final scene where David finally makes it home. Paul Rubin's best line in this whole movie is the last time he says compliance. Yes. When David says, yes, you got me home, but I have to go back to the right timeline. And uh, Max knows what a big risk it is, but he has to do what he's told. And there's such a weight to his delivery of that line. And there's so much feeling and emotion that comes through that one word. It's very well done. It is. And I think that's where Paul Rubin's really cements himself as the absolute perfect casting for that character. Because you're right, it's one word. It's one word, and we've heard him say it a dozen times. But it just hits differently when he says it that time. No, and it makes up for all of the bickering that they do when they're first trying to feel each other out and figure it out. I mean, because that part... When I was like, oh, of course it's Paul Rubens because it was just short of, I know you are, but what am I? Exactly. It was almost to that point. Sarah Jessica Parker is Carolyn McAdams. I really thought you were going to say D. Schneider. <laughs> um, no, she's D. Schneider now. I am not the biggest fan of Sarah Jessica Parker, but I really, really like her in this movie. I like her character. I like how she delivers everything. I love the heart that she gives the character. I actually think of all of the things that I've seen her in, this is probably the one role that I like the most. She very much surprised me in this film because, yes, it's one of her earlier roles, so it's a minor role. She doesn't, you know, she's not going to have a lot of lines. She's not going to have that big of a part. But she does kind of steal the scene for the little bit that she's in because... Okay, she's playing an intern. You kind of get the impression that she's, you know, like high school, college age, and she doesn't care about anything but her friends and going to the concert and fashion and that kind of thing. And they're setting her up to be one dimensional, which she's actually really not because she does help David escape. Uh, you know, she doesn't tell him necessarily, climb in Ralph and get out of here, but she does take a liking to him. And she does let him know that it's going to be okay. But she does a lot of emoting through her eyes, which is not something you see very much now. Uh, It's certainly not something that she did as Carrie Bradshaw. Um, But yeah, it it was an unexpected depth for her. But I thought she was great. Yeah. Howard Hessman plays Dr. Lewis Faraday. Um... Listen, he's fine. He didn't do a poor job, but he's every shady NASA scientist you've seen in any of these movies, whether it be this or the shady NASA scientists 
and doctors in E.T. that are trying to convince Elliot that they truly love E.T. and they're concerned for him. He's just another one. He's just another one in line. It's nothing against his performance, but that is a very stereotypical, one-dimensional character. Exactly. I don't really have anything to elaborate on that. Jeff Freeman. There were two actors that played him. Albie Whitaker plays him as an eight-year-old, and Matt Adler plays him as a 16-year-old. And while I felt that Albie Whitaker did a really good job for an eight-year-old kid, Matt Adler was one of the better actors in this film because what he successfully does is, while he is relieved that he has his brother back, he, number one, is completely shell-shocked. But number two, you you see that he continues to carry a guilt and that he has carried a guilt for eight years because he, in a roundabout way, blames himself for his what is perceived to be his brother's death because he scared him in the tree and then his brother took off. He blames himself for all of that. You can see the weight, even though he is alive, you see the weight that he carries to this day, and I thought that Matt Adler was spectacular. Yeah, no, it's it's a great character, and the performance is what puts it over the top because the first thing that he does is apologize to David, even before David has his mind fully wrapped around what's going on. And really, even before Jeff does, he says that he's sorry for, for causing his disappearance. And then Jeff doesn't even care what David has been through, he's his first ally. He's the first one to believe him. Uh, and even before he really believes him, he's going to do whatever he can to help him out. He stays overnight in the hospital before, because he does do a night in the hospital before NASA gets their grubby paws on him. Right. Uh, and he ends up being David's biggest ally in getting home. Right. Veronica Cartwright and Bill, De, or, uh, sorry, Cliff DeYoung play Helen and Bill Freeman. They're really good. Listen, they're not your stereotypical 80s parents, but for 80s parents, they did a really nice job. They were concerned for David. They were fine. I don't know what else you want me to say. They were just really good in their roles. They were they were well-written characters, and it was executed. But with that being said, could anybody have played them? Yeah, yes. probably. Yeah, they could have. I want to talk about the score for a minute because we didn't bring this up yet. This movie is scored by Alan Silvestri, which is really interesting to me because Alan Silvestri, at the time that he did this, is coming off the heels of Back to the Future because he scored for that. And then he later goes on to score for some of the Avengers movies. Oh, those little indie films? Yeah, those little indie films. But what is so intriguing to me about Alan Silvestri this is, it's going to sound weird. This isn't meant to be an insult to John Williams because John Williams is just so good. But when you hear a John Williams score, you know it's a John Williams score. For sure. With Alan Silvestri, if you played this, the score from Back to the Future, the score from uh, Captain America or any of the Avenger films, not one sounds the same. They all, to me at least, they all sound different. Yeah, I don't want to say that Alan Silvestri is 
that his work is more diverse than John Williams, but it same that you know a John Williams score when you hear it, no matter what movie it is. You know a Danny Elfman score, yes. no matter what movie it is. But with Alan Silvestri, I would have never known. Certainly because, you know, that opening montage, I mean, admittedly, I was distracted by all the cute puppies. But it sounds like it could be any techno-y, video gamey 80s score. Yeah, Devo. Something that exactly. you would have heard Devo. Exactly. And I, I would have never known until his name came up across the, stre- the screen. Yeah. All right. Uh, f- are we ready for final thoughts? I think so. I'm going to let you bat lead off. Um, I'll let you go. I was so pleasantly surprised by this film. Um, I wish I had grown up on it. Um, I think I would have been, you know, completely obsessed as a kid. Um, I think I would have enjoyed it so much more. That's not to say that I didn't now because we watched it the first time and I couldn't wait to watch it again and to discuss it. And now we get to discuss it a second time. Twice. So, <laughs> so nice. We do it I'm twice. I'm really glad that I liked it so much because can you imagine if we didn't, we had to sit here and do a whole nother recording. Imagine as much fun as we had with him. Imagine if you, me and Scott had to sit here and do fuzz bucket again. Oh my God. Could you imagine? I don't think Scott would have wanted to come back. No. Like I said, it, I was so pleasantly surprised by this one. Uh, it was really fun it was an unexpected adventure and it was so endearing there were a couple of little things story-wise that I took issue with but it's got such a great arc for the main character uh I'm willing to overlook it and as far as does it hold up um yeah absolutely I mean yeah there are some things that are going to be forever stuck in the 80s but they're not going to be unrelatable now. Uh, and I think there are so many other enjoyable things about this movie. I don't think that it matters. Uh, I think you could put somebody that's our age down in front of this movie that hasn't seen it, like myself, and they're going to get a kick out of it. And you could put their kid in front of it, too, and they're going to like it just as much. There are things that are stuck in the 80s, yes. But as the old saying goes, what's old is new again. Look no further than Epcot and, and and the fact that they are really starting to... Destroy dig, it? No, calm down. They're starting to really delve into the idea of these pavilions again and everything has an identity and they've changed the font and there are rumors that it may eventually go back to Epcot Center, right? So, I, I mean, if they haven't by now, they probably won't. But you're starting to see all the retro stuff come back. So what is old is new again. I sit here now watching this, as weird as this is, angry at my dad. Because he showed me all of these movies that fell into this genre, as I mentioned at the top of the show. He never showed me this, and I feel cheated. I think that if I would have seen this as a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, this would have been a film that I would have grown up with. I would have worn out the VHS tape. I would have worn out the DVD. I think it would have been one of my absolute favorites because in my mid-30s, I can sit here and tell you that this movie, to me, is so enjoyable 
it's in my top 10 Disney films ever. Wow. And I'll take you one better. That includes Star Wars and the MCU. Wow. So so had you seen this at a young age, like this is the film that would have made you want to be an astronaut? Yeah, this probably would have been above Space Camp. Dang! It would have been it would have been above ET. If I would have had a lineage with this film, if I had spent my life with it, it I would go so far as to say it may not have I may not have liked it more than The Jungle Book or Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But I if I had been raised with this movie, and I've got a lot of Disney films that I was raised with as a kid that I have fond memories of and that I still love to this day, I don't think there's one other than those two that if I would have spent a life with, I would have enjoyed more than this, so that I would have ranked higher than this movie. Because I loved these movies, and still do. I still watch Space Camp. I still watch Batteries Not Included. Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future. Call me what you want. I still love these movies. And and to me, this is in that same sci-fi fantastical world. Is it imperfect? No. It leaves us asking questions. Why were the NASA scientists acting like they knew what Phelan was and that never really gets answered? Why does the mother have a cake sitting on top of the television set? Like, dumb <laughs> things like that. But, I mean, this this is as close as a movie can get to being perfect without actually being perfect, in my opinion. No, and if you take away the storytelling that we're used to now, like, forget Star Wars, forget that Marvel exists... If you look at this as what it was as an 80s movie, yeah, it's one of the best 80s movies there is. I think this is better than St. Elmo's Fire. I think... I wouldn't go that far. Uh, Breakfast Club, is it better than The Breakfast Club? Here's the thing. I think The uh, Breakfast Club is a great movie, but it's almost overdone. But that's not really the movie's fault. No, you got to pick something that's not like such a character study because Breakfast Club is perfect. 16 Candles. Well, same it's kind of the Stop same picking thing. from John Hughes. Uh, hmm. Well, I'm not going to put it above Ghostbusters or Back to the Future. It's better than Space Camp. It probably, it is better than Space Camp, but I, but I, I'm going to rank Space Camp higher because. To me, I go back to being six years old and watching that movie. But this is the better. It's better than War Games. And War Games is great. Definitely better than War Games. But if you haven't seen it yet, definitely check it out. For sure. And if you have seen it, we're interested in knowing what you have to say about it. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us monorailradio at gmail.com news of the week is coming up as well as a giveaway but first a quick break if you're thinking of taking a disney trip this year whether it's walt disney world in florida disneyland in california a disney cruise or olani in hawaii get in touch with me for a free quote i would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family or even if you've already booked reach out i want to help get you the best deal possible you can contact me on any of the monorail radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. 
if you guys are looking for branding, if you're looking for graphic design media kits, you have to go check out Kelly's work. In fact, her specialty is Disney content creators, but she runs the gamut. She can take care of anyone. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. To see all of Kelly's work, go to karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Things are getting really sloppy right now with the... (laughs) With ScarJo and Disney, some people are following suit, pun intended. Some are not. Ah. Some are not. Okay, ScarJo, there's two ways that you can look at this. For those who are not up to speed here. I'm actually very glad that we couldn't use the other episode just so we can talk about this. ScarJo got $20 million. $20 million to be in Black Widow. And is now suing Disney because she wants more money. Because she gets a part of the box office. But Disney released Black Widow in theaters and as premium content on Disney+. Plus. There are two ways that you can look at this. I'm interested in seeing where you, Jackie in the industry, sit on the fence before I give my opinion here of what I think. Honestly, my gut reaction was to roll my eyes and say, oh, rich people problems. But upon reading more and really examining this uh, and, and thinking about how personally I relate to it, Uh, I'm glad that she stood up for herself. Um, Granted, the Me Too movement was about sexual harassment. And a lot of women came forward who didn't feel like they could speak up for themselves. And they finally had a platform to do so and a safe space to do so. And it changed a lot. And the rules are being completely rewritten. And it's unfortunate that so many women were victims of horrible things. But you know what? These badass ladies made lemonade out of lemons. And Hollywood has had to reconcile everything. Part two of that is that women really started fighting for equal pay. Now, I know that this is unfathomable to some people when you're talking about the millions upon millions of dollars that actors are making, and it may not seem fair that they're asking for more, but there is a giant pay gap between what male and female actors are making in this industry. So that has also started to be reconciled now. And I feel like if ScarJo didn't speak up for herself, it's going to undo how far we've come just in the past three years alone. I also give her a lot of credit because she has come under a lot of fire recently. In the wake of the Me Too movement, she went on record saying that she would continue to work with Woody Allen despite him being accused of sexual harassment, among other things. And she also caught a lot of flack because 
she was in the adaptation of Ghost in a Shell, which is a Japanese manga series. And essentially, she whitewashed the role by accepting it when it should have gone to an Asian actress. Uh, So she has not been in Hollywood's good graces or the public's good graces, really, uh, because all these things are adding up. So to be this outspoken now, when you've got a couple of strikes against you like that, uh, I was kind of surprised that she opened her mouth, but I'm glad that she did because, you know, thinking about what I would do in a situation, I mean, I would never be in a situation like this making that kind of money. Right. It's, it's insane to me. But just thinking about how last year in the pandemic, um, I was out of work. I was in the middle of working on a show when we shut down and... I knew that we were going to run out of footage because it was in the middle of filming and we all got furloughed and I was out of work for like four months and I got to go back in September of 2020 to a different show with a different company. And I was just so happy to go back to work and get my position back. I agreed to take a pay cut and it was a pretty substantial pay cut. I took a cut of $75 per day just because I wanted to go back to work. And that was my choice. I knew what I was getting myself into. And I knew that that was probably going to be status quo for a while because this industry is going to try and pinch pennies and bounce back just like everyone else is. And they're going to cut budgets. Um But what I didn't realize was that not only did they cut pay, they cut staff. So for less money per day, me and my team were spread so paper thin. I mean, 12-hour days for us became the standard. And we just had to get it done because what were we going to do? Not produce a show? So looking at it on those terms, I applaud her for opening her mouth. She had to. We shouldn't just accept this because of the pandemic. And it's going to take big moves like this, fighting back to get back to where we were as far as the pay scale goes. And women were already down a peg. So I appreciate ScarJo taking one for the team here. Yeah, there are two different ways that you can look at this. And this is going to probably get me in trouble. There are two With me or with, <laughs> with people everyone, in Everyone, <laughs> everyone. There are two ways to look at this. The first is... Did they void a contract? Did they do anything wrong in a contract? Because if it says, if the contract states you get a piece of the box office, but don't worry, we're never going to stream this, then yeah, they went against the contract. If it if they never had explicit language against, uh, you know, in regards to streaming, you did get a piece of the box office. So, th- but that's the legal sense. Okay, that's the legal sense. In which case, she might not have anything to stand on. But where I do side with her, it's everything that you just said, right? Which, by the way, for people to like to turn their backs on her, like give me give me a bleep and break. You know what I'm saying? Like she was really a hero. I thought very early in the Me Too movement because she was one of the few A-list actresses that had a major role. In a comic book franchise that is mostly male-driven. So a lot of people looked at her 
as a hero because she was a role model for young girls. And it's unfortunate that all of that got negated because she said she would still work with Woody Allen. But this is a thing that people forget about. This is all about what have you done for me lately. Oh, yeah. Okay. And especially the cesspool that is social media. They love you on Monday. They can't stand you by Tuesday. And they're kissing and making up with you on Wednesday. That's just how it goes. So I applaud her, as you said, for doing everything that she can to not take the step backwards. And I also think... That where this is going to get really interesting is for because you're starting to see now these actors and actresses are not only starring in these movies, but because they make so much money, it's disgusting how much a lot of them make. Um, they are now starting to get producing credits on these films because they are looking further than do my one role, get my paycheck and go. They're thinking about box office. They're thinking about home video release, they're thinking about streaming, they're thinking long-term, can I keep getting... And they're all doing it. Or simply because they care. I mean, Tom Hiddleston has executive producer credit on Loki because he loves the character so damn much he just didn't want to let it die. Yeah, and believe me, there's plenty of attorneys and business people that are telling them it's a good investment. So you can love the character all you want, but you love that green because these people are going to make money for the next 30 years. Oh, you have to give some people credit for artistic integrity. I think that there is... But money helps. And then you got people like Gerard Butler coming out of the woodwork for a movie that he did in 2013 that wants a cut of Amazon. You know, here's this is where it gets really interesting because now Emma Stone is thinking about doing it. Okay. But she's here's the thing, though. It's easy for ScarJo to do it because her character is dead. Unless you make another Black Widow film, she's done. So it's easy for her. Yeah, Black Widow can't get blacklisted. Here's the thing. The Rock has already come out and said he's not going to, but he sees the bigger picture. This is where the business perspective comes in because Seven Bucks is producing the Behind the Attraction show on Disney+. Plus. He's freaking Maui. He's Maui. You know that they're going to do at least one, if not two sequels to The Jungle Cruise. And possibly even Moana. Correct. So there's more for him. Similarly, they're starting to develop a Cruella sequel. So there's more coming for Emma Stone. So does Emma Stone want to sue Disney when she's got at least another role coming? I don't know. But this is where I applaud ScarJo for standing up to herself. I mean, it's different because she doesn't have as much to lose. But this is where I'm thinking of what would I do in this situation I gave in. I took the job that paid less because I wanted to further my career long term. I didn't want to sit on unemployment. I didn't want to miss out on the chance to work on another show with my team that I am still with now on another different show. So that would have been a very bad move for me. But this is the position that we're in now is is do you cut off your nose to spite your face. And this is to go back to what I was talking about before, where all of these people are looking at this as business decisions because artistic integrity, whatever, at the end of the day, this is about money. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about money. But I'm not saying that in in a bad way. I'm saying that in... There is a lot of money that gets made at the box office because... On average, call it $15 a seat. If a family of four wants to go see a movie, they're 60 bucks. 
per family. So ScarJo is making a hell of a lot more money on four people going to a cinema than four people getting it for $29 on Disney+. And this is the trickle-down effect that we've been talking about really since the beginning of Disney Plus is what happens when, you know, one family has it and they pay for premiere access for all the kids in the neighborhood to come over and watch it at a slumber party or something. Bingo. So you've got that. You've got Netflix where you pay your flat fee, you get everything. Amazon, you play, you pay a flat fee, you get everything. I don't have Apple TV, but I think that does the same thing. At the end of the day, if these actors and actresses are putting money behind a project, they don't want $29. They want $60. They don't want a film included for free. They want box office. Money, 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 money. So if that's the case, it is completely possible that they don't sign on with these studios if they're not going to get theatrical releases. And what I mean by that is not split the box office. I don't think long-term these actors and actresses want premiere access. I don't think they want streaming. I think they want people in a movie theater to go see movies. Because number one, at the end of the day, if they do have artistic integrity, some do, some don't. Let's just call it what it is. If they do have artistic integrity, a lot of them, I think, are traditionalists in they grew up going to a movie theater. That's where they found their inspiration. I think I don't think they want to see movie theaters die. That's the warm and fuzzy heart and soul. Then there's the attorneys and the business people and the financial advisors that want people going into a movie theater. I think that what this is going to do, other than legitimize ScarJo's stance and further push the Me Too movement forward, which is important, and it should get pushed forward, the other thing that I think it's going to do is it's going to kill these premier access things that Disney has been doing and that some of these other studios are now doing. And I think it's going to force a return to a traditional box office. Good. Because that's what we've been saying from the jump here when it started happening with soul, where they gave that to us for free and then Luca. And that that's also two hits to a major studio that Pixar's taking, you know, and, and the people that worked on those films, they had a big issue with that, that they weren't getting the same theatrical release that, they thought they were getting when they signed on to that project. And like, okay, there is a certain, there's a certain aspect in all of the, all of this where you have to realize like, okay, yes, we were in a pandemic. And that, that's the other thing we didn't even delve into uh, yet. Is Disney's that response. Disney called her callous for doing this and not being mindful of the pandemic, uh, which I'm very surprised that they chose those words and actually went on went out on the limb and said it you know well let me ask you this on the surface take the me too stuff away on the surface is what she's doing callous if disney's perspective on this is 
we had to do premiere access because I think in Canada, actually, I don't think movie theaters are even open yet. I think the only way you can see a new movie is on streaming. There are a lot of towns and cities where their movie theaters never reopen because the, they went out of business. Right. And there are people that are just not going out. There are people that are not eating at restaurants, that are not going to movie theaters, that are not going to sporting events because they don't feel safe. So I think Disney, and it, listen, it's PR 101. Oh, yeah. yeah All right. Yeah, yeah. They are positioning themselves to be like, nope, we're not the bad guy because we're trying to make every, we're trying to share our content with everybody in a space where they are comfortable. On the surface, put all the other stuff away. Is Disney wrong in making that statement? That's that's the question I'm actually asking you. Like when you when the, your knee jerk reaction, other than well, geez, didn't wasn't twenty million dollars enough? What did you have a knee jerk reaction of? Well, you got to be fair to the people that can't get to a movie theater right now that want to sort of patron your film. Does it seem insensitive? I mean, like I said, my first reaction was rich people problems. Uh, I wasn't thinking of it from that perspective at all. But what I was actually going to say was that I don't think anybody was thinking about this. I think that everybody's eyes were on, well, are we getting as much money if the one person's with the subscription is showing it to a bigger audience and having a mm-hmm. movie night in their backyard. I don't think any studio or any streaming service saw this coming where the actors were going to start speaking out. And that's where, like I said, I applaud her for doing it because somebody had to take the first hit. And listen, she's never afraid to take the first hit. She's, she's very, very tough. I think we know that about her. Um, but you know, to go back to what we were saying, yeah, I think Disney was a little... I was a little surprised that they came out and said it. I think, as I said, it's PR 101. I I'm also surprised think, at the choice of words more than anything else, um, if I'm going to be taken aback by anything. I'm not, only because I think that they were so taken aback that she went so public with suing them. And I think that that was sort of a defense mechanism for them. I think that by saying she's callous... She's this in the face of a pandemic. I think what they were trying to do was pivot the negative attention onto her. I think they were trying to project negative attention onto her so that perhaps she wouldn't have so much support behind her. And unfortunately for Disney, it kind of blew up in their face. I, that, I don't sit here often and say that anything that Disney does has blown up in their face. Harmonious. You've not seen it. This is one time I can sit here confidently and say, it blew up in your face. Yeah, I I would even go so far. And I mean, maybe this is unfair without actually having seen the contract and knowing exactly what she was promised, but I think Disney is in the wrong here. Unless, this is the thing, legally, unless there's explicit language in the contract, they didn't do anything wrong. That's the problem for ScarJo. Again, I don't know, I didn't read the damn contract, but if the contract 
is pretty cut and dry and says you get 15% of the box office. I don't know what it is. 5% of the box office. It doesn't matter. Whatever the percentage is, unless it says something about and will not be released on a digital platform until three months out of after theatrical or won't be or it won't be released side by side because you have to imagine that contract was signed before the pandemic even happened. So if there's not like if there's not a uh, if there's not a clause that gets added to the contract after the fact, which, by the way, they're not obligated to do. Right. The minute you put pen to paper. That's it. It's over. Right. Like the box, the cut of the box office is the cut of the box office, regardless of wherever else this is. So in Disney's defense, and and it's not just because I wear my mouse colored glasses, I would say this in regards to any business. If it's not in the contract and you don't get what you want, it then you just don't get what you want. But people cannot sit there. This is my, this is what I'm saying. It's not my, I mean, it is my opinion, but from a from a contr- from a contractual standpoint from a legal standpoint if it's not in the contract they didn't do anything wrong so if they didn't do anything wrong you can't hold it against them what this is going to do is change contracts moving forward for sure and i think perhaps if there's nothing written in the contract that might be what this is more than anything else this might be about positioning Actors and actresses moving forward to not get taken advantage of in the future. And that's where, from ScarJo's perspective, it's worth the gamble because she was in the works to do the Tower of Terror movie. She was producing it. So that's where she can look at this as, well, Black Widow is done. My time with Marvel is done. But if I want to set myself up for the future, and it's it's a very calculated risk because she's probably pissed off Disney to the point where they don't want her to produce this film. But if you're going to go through with all of it, she wants to make sure that she gets everything that's coming her way. And when you're producing a film, you know, if she's producing and acting in it, which I don't know that she is, I thought she was just producing, but... It's an unimaginable amount of work and you don't want to be knee deep in the project and realize, oh, this isn't worth my time. Well, get a good lawyer. I mean, that's that's what it is and that's what it's going to be moving forward. But we're interested in knowing what you have to say about this latest drama with ScarJo and Disney in the lawsuit. Which side of the fence are you on and perhaps where do you think this is going? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio or you can email us monorailradio at gmail.com. It is time for a giveaway and for this month we have a Monorail Radio t-shirt and a straw charm from our good friends over at the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. So in order to win the uh, the prize pack, in order to enter yourself, you need to do one, two, three things. On the social media, because we will have posts about it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'm not saying you need to do it on all three. But if you do it on all three, you do get an entry per platform. So you may want to do it on all three. Like us, or, you know, like follow, us, follow, like, whatever. Sign up for the long haul. Okay. Like us, follow, whatever. That's the page. Like the post, tag a friend. 
like the media, like like the like the page, like the post, tag a friend. If you do that, you are entered to win the prize pack, and you have until Monday, August 9th, to, uh, twenty twenty one, at eleven fifty nine p.m. Eastern Standard Time to enter, and we will be announcing the winner of that giveaway. Uh, the following day when we drop the episode for Davy Crockett. Spoiler, it's Davy Crockett because we <laughs> went out of order, but you are going to get the Davy Crockett review. All right, and again, that is for a T-shirt from Monoreal Radio and a straw charm from the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Thank you guys for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or any of your other podcast platforms of choice. Follow us on all of that social media, and for links to everything, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.